Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm thrilled to have on Ellie Nash, who is an entrepreneur and CEO and TEDx speaker and all-around amazing guy. And this is the first NSFW, not safe for work, uh, episode that we do because we speak about sex addiction and toxic shame and a lot of issues that are probably not great for your kids to be listening to while they're driving to school in the morning, but very important for us all to discuss and to recognize the human element behind all of this. Uh, So with no further ado, I'm thrilled to have on Ellie Nash. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, Lift Your Legacy is committed to helping you live a more authentic and meaningful life. That being said, if I could ask you to share this podcast with someone that you think would get value from the message, that would be fantastic. In addition, I wanted to make you aware that along with the podcast, I do offer executive coaching. I help people who are successful and highly motivated, who want to see extreme, or not even so extreme, maybe just a small change that in their life. I want to help them get to the next level. What does that mean specifically? Creating more peace in your relationships with yourself, growing your business, clarifying your career. And even if you need a little bit of help losing some weight or getting more healthy, I do that also. I'm not for everyone, but for those people that are invested in making their life better and taking the next step, I highly recommend you consider me as a coach for you. Now, how do you get in touch? Well, you found the podcast. I wanted to tell you also my email, Jacob, my first name, Jacob at liftyourlegacy.live. Feel free, please, to reach out there or on any or all of my social media channels. I'd be thrilled to give you a complimentary half an hour conversation to see if we might be a good fit to work together. And now, with no further ado, I ask you to please sit back and enjoy the show. Um, Ellie Nash, I'm thrilled to have you on. You are a a TEDx speaker a CEO yourself, someone who's been instrumental in helping other people tell their stories and, t- and telling your own story. Um, I'm, I know that there's a lot in terms of where this could go. So let's just see where it does go. So just get me started. How did you wind up being where you are now? When you say being where I am now, I'm which aspect of that? Not sitting in your office right now, but right. in terms of running a company and, and just sharing your story to the world about, you know, as, as a TEDx speaker, how did you get to that point? Yeah, so sharing the story, uh, not sure where I would start, but one day I just felt this overwhelming thing inside of me that had to come out. I just needed to to speak about it. Where did you grow up and how did you grow up? Okay, let's go back a little bit. A little bit. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Crown Heights, an extremely Hasidic environment. It is the um, birthing place of most. What is that? That, That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, extremely Hasidic. What's that, right? It's like extremely narcissist. Right? That's like, what's that? Doesn't, doesn't narcissist cover extreme already? Okay, right. great. Right. So you grew up extremely Hasidic in Crown Heights. In Crown Heights, the, the birthing place of most Chabad rabbis. Right. Right. That's where. Your beard's a little short. Mine is. I, I say that I'm undercover, you know. If, uh, <laughs> the, right. highest posi- the highest positions get to wear a suit, not a, not a uniform. That's correct. So that's okay, all. So, so you grew up in Crown Heights. Job to do. So I grew up in Crown Heights. Uh, my Parents were both Baltruvas, which means they both became religious, in their case, in their 20s. And, you know, you're growing up in this world, but I also had a, a view to the outside. Where did that come from? My, my parents' families. Okay. So and, seeing and, that... Go ahead. So in, in, that, in that world, as a kid that grows up that way, did you feel like your identity was not clear? Did you feel like you had more options than your friends that might have grown up in a entirely Hasidic family that they go all the way back kind of a thing? Or what was that experience like growing up? 
the one thing I remember very clearly was when I stepped on the outside, I always felt um, boxed in, mm-hmm. right? Because part of the Hasidic way of life is to stand out right, very quickly. The beards, the, uh, I didn't have a beard when I was younger, but the black and white clothing and the yarmulke, the payas, right? So all of that was part of the part of life. And I always felt when that was one thing about the identity. I felt that people thought they knew who I was without knowing me. And maybe that's, I guess, fed into a desire to just speak a little more and maybe I'll surprise you or something like that. Right. Like, don't allow my, Did maybe. You, do, you, do you think, no, I, I love that. Do, do you think that that's, is that productive? I'm saying like, I know that it's a necessary or it's a, it's a practical outcome in a lot of ways, but do you feel, I guess, maybe just from your contemporaries, were you unique in the sense that you wanted to put your voice out there? I feel the same way. I wish I was a little kid and having these kinds of experiences, but I also feel like don't judge me based on how I look or what I'm supposed to be, but let me actually talk and then you can figure out if you don't like me or when you don't like me, so to speak. Right. Did you have that similar experience of feeling misunderstood? As a kid or? Um, yes, but I was fat, not Hasidic. Okay, so. But yes. Right, not Hasidic, but it's just that feeling of being misunderstood, right? Ultimately, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess that's the. That's <laughs> there the are a lot of different ways. Yeah, sorry, 100%. I, there are a lot of different ways to get to these universal discomfort, uncomfortable feelings. Correct. <laughs> but one thing that, that did um, interest me as a teenager was I felt this tension between the two worlds where on, in the inside the Hasidic world, they wanted me to be to conform. That's what I felt like. They wanted me to be, don't ask questions, just be the same. And then when I stepped outside, when I walked out of the bubble of Crown Heights and took a subway to Manhattan, then over there, the message was be comfortable being different. I was like, well, which one do you want me to be? If you want me to be comfortable being different, you should allow me to express my individuality here too. So, so how did, so then, so what was next? How did you, how did you eventually, like, did you, start with business first or how did you get into building your company and, and, and where did the whole story and the, and the, and the discussion around pornography, which I think is, which is amazing. And I, I would, I will. Okay. So we I mean, want to get to that. The, let's the let's talk get about, to it. I mean, there's, okay, there's so the much talk to about pornography. Specifically pornography as relates to business. Specifically as it relates to business. I, no, not necessarily. Just you know, No, I'm, I'm going to tell you how I got there. Because I started my business real young. I started my business at 19 years old is I saw a lot of, A, I saw that, rich people were respected. That's one that, thing that I saw. It's like, okay, you know, that, there was a, a power and influence that came from it. But besides for that, my parents didn't really get along and the fights, most of the fights were about money. Now I know later on, right? A couple of bucks later that the money was not the real source of the problem, but that's, that's what I heard as a kid. And I was saying, oh, wow. If I made money, I can solve this problem, right? If they're fighting over $500, you get this feeling like, I just wish I can stop this fight by writing a check or pulling out some money. So uh, it, I definitely was planted with a desire to make money. And 19, 20 years old, I started working and very quickly the company grew. Uh, by the time I was 23, 24, I had a number of employees, a multi-million dollar business. And um, and what, was that was there a, was there a vindication there? What was that? What was that like for you, having achieved what you felt was such a cause of stress as you got older? No, there wasn't. It was exactly the opposite feeling. It was almost as if someone told me, "There's a there's a, a, a magic box of coins under that bridge, and then you dig and you kind of find it, but it's not anything." Uh-huh. And. I found that it didn't resolve my problems. It didn't resolve my parents' problems. It didn't, you know, it just was money and that's all. And I guess I started on another search for, you know, what's, why do I feel so empty? And it took me into my childhood where a lot of these searches do. And uh, for a number of years, I stumbled on this um, three or four year experience, three year experience of being sexually abused as a child. And then going through all of that and uncovering it and realizing the way it affected me. And uh, one of those ways that it affected, most likely, maybe I would have got it without it, but uh, was a sex addiction. And um, I've realized the power of speech and the power of talking and the negative power of shame. And one way to unlock ourselves from the negative power of shame is to speak about it. So I was ashamed of pornography, so I spoke about it. Talk to me about this, this shame and how it affects p- 
people, how it affects you and why, I guess, why it happens and, and why it's so important to move through it. I think shame is almost everything. There are, there are books which um, I, I saw someone who is it who described humans as animals which can blush. Like the only yeah. difference between us, yeah, we can talk, but there's also that shame, the healthy shame that tells me I should urinate in the toilet and not in public, right? Those are good, healthy shame. And the toxic shame that tells me I don't belong in a meeting with, with people or, you know, I don't belong, I, I don't deserve to have this position or this thing in my, good thing in my life, or I'll never get that girl or she'll never love me or I'll never, whatever, all of that stuff. Those are the things uh, in my TED, TEDx talk, one of the lines, it was a psychologist, I forget his name, who said this, the single biggest cause of most psychological issues is shame. It's definitely the root of addiction. It's definitely the root of borderline narcissism, all of these disorders that we walk around with every single day, shame. So the idea is that a person therefore says, I have this thing, I can't share it. And as a result, I have to figure out some coping mechanism, which then is what, what leads a person to alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever it might be. Yeah, maybe it would be healthy if we um, define shame. Talk to me, tell me. Right, so you have the healthy, source, the healthy sort of shame, right, which kind of separates me from you, which is good sort, sort of shame. Um, we're wearing clothing, those kind of examples. And toxic shame, I think, is the, the feeling, Brene Brown described it as this, the feeling that I'm not worthy of connection, right? As I am, I'm not worthy of connection as we are, we're not worthy of connection. So then we start putting masks or we hide things or we change things. And one of those, so when I say I'm ashamed of pornography, what I'm saying is that if you knew how dependent I was on pornography, even now that I stopped, but prior to doing that TED talk, the thought was if you knew how dependent I was on pornography, how hard I had to work to stay away from it, um, how much I've watched of it, how easy it is for me to replay those, all those scenes and craziness in my head, how many hours and dollars and time I wasted on this thing. I, you would never want to connect with me. You would never like me. You would never care for me. And what I found is that those are lies and those things that we're most ashamed about. When we speak, it does just the opposite. The, every single day I get an email, an Instagram message, someone on the street um, thanking me for talking about porn addiction, with, usually with specifics. I had one guy send me a message on Instagram last week saying, thank you so much for saving my life. After watching your talk, um, I've decided to check into rehab. Wow. Right? And certainly I didn't save his life. And there was obviously a lot he's been working on since then. And his life isn't saved. We don't know what's going to happen in rehab. So I'm not taking any credit or blame for this guy. But that's pretty cool to be a part of this guy's journey that Let's just say there's no more shame around the pornography anymore because I've spoken about it. For yourself, you're saying, but, the, but it's, it's incredibly endemic in the society. Of course, for me. For you, right, in the, relig right. In the religious world. So what is it, maybe, maybe- It's not just religious shame. Tell me more. There is the religious shame, but I got, you know, I got rid of a lot of the religious shame in terms of other things as well. I think the shame for me was there's almost nothing more demoralizing than losing control of yourself. You know, feeling that, I'm doing this again. Right. I've, I would smash laptops and smash computers and say, I'm done. I'm never doing this again. And three days later, I'm there browsing porn. I'm like, how the F did I get here? Right. It's demoralizing and it's shameful. You know, you sit in a meeting and someone's saying like, oh, there's a guy, the CEO of the company, right? And it's supposed to make you feel good. And the thought that goes through your head is if only this guy knew that I can't even have a laptop in my house if I wanted to, if I don't want to watch porn. I, I've, I've filtered Google images, not, not anymore, but for three years, I had no Google images on my computer at work so that I can't look at porn on Google images through basic searches. So maybe-, maybe That's demoralizing. No, it's, it's, it's incredibly demoralizing. The, the, so, so then do, do you attribute that addiction to, to, to what, and, and why is it so, and I, I don't want to, you know, make you, you know, speculate on, on experiences that are not yours, but I'm sure having shared, you, you do have experiences talking to other people that are, that are suffering through these kinds of issues. What are we lacking when we look for 
porn or unhealthy connections or, or whatever it might be? What, what's missing in our life that we're trying to solve? In general, whenever we find ourselves re returning to the same habitual behavior that we, that we know we want to stop. Yeah, I'll answer this very anecdotally, not from too much research, just from hearing a lot of stories, which is the way I- At the end of the day, I think that's what matters. Yeah, I, I hear a bunch of different people talk about stuff. So obviously I wonder about addiction a lot. And addiction, I know some people say is um, genetic and things like that. Maybe there's some genetic component to it. Like for example, if my great-grandfather was an asshole, then maybe genetically my grandfather will be, and they'll create an environment for their kids where each one of them will feel enough pain that they'll go to addiction. But I don't know that there's necessarily, maybe there's some research, I don't know there's necessarily an addictive gene, as in I'm born to someone and then I can be dropped on the other side of the planet and I'll end up with, with addiction. I think, and I'll tell you why I say this, because anecdotally, I've never heard anyone in recovery from addiction talk about a hunky-dory childhood, every single one. I'm and I'm, I'm not talking about little pain. I'll give you an example of uh, once I, I heard a guy share his story on Saturday night. This is how his story started. He said, when I was three years old, my earliest childhood memory, he said I was three years old, I was playing in the bathtub with my one-year-old brother, my parents weren't around, and I somehow drowned my brother. And what, in the story, he actually had a tremendous amount of guilt and responsibility because his parents, A, neglected him by leaving a three and one-year-old in a bath together, and then B, blamed it on him after the fact. And he was still carrying, when he spoke about this, he was still carrying the, the shame, the guilt, the blame of killing his brother when he was three. And it's those kind, I don't think it's a, it was a gene that was passed down. I think this guy ended up in recovery from addiction because of, because of that. So I love the work of Dr. Gabor Mate. He's a, an addiction expert out in um, Canada. And he says, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. And, and so it's like, it's, it's so interesting because before any of these questions, there's shame, which, which we used and then to say there's no problem here. And, and that's, that's kind of, it's like a, it's a multi, it's a multifaceted challenge that, that there's pain that's unresolved that a person doesn't necessarily know how to deal with. And then on top of it, we start to self-medicate, which is the addiction addictive behaviors or, or whatever we might do. And then on top of that is that we show off as if everything's, you know, everything's fine. Then we, we guilt other people and we guilt ourselves at the right. same time. And, and, you know, like, Oh, that's so dirty. I can't believe you do that. And then you always find in so many cases, the people that are in a lot of ways leading the charge against, you know, indicting other people are themselves suffering with, with the same stuff that they're oftentimes accusing other people of doing. Right. One of the things I like to do if someone's yelling at me is I just imagine them in their own head yelling at themselves and like they have to not yelling, but meaning so projecting sad. negativity towards For me. Sure. Right. Likely they talk to themselves like that also. That's where they got the language. Absolutely. Right. And, and it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. I, um, I, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of turn signals. And I uh, saw so someone had to wait a second because he thought I was going straight and I was turning and, and he flipped me off and it was just, I felt bad for him that that was such an inconvenience that it, that it impacted him so emotionally that he was so angry. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. like, great, great. I mean, like, yes, I should use turn signals. But on the flip side, a person that could be so easily triggered, you know, the people that will like just freak out and punch you, so to speak, like they're, they're dealing with a tremendous amount of pain that they're, they're triggered, that they're, that they're, that they're right. short. Yes. It's like, um, it's the equivalent of touching someone with a burn. Right, you can tap them and they can react as if you exactly. just right. slugged 100%. them with a hammer. Hundred <laughs> percent. So, as now in in regard to this specific issue, so porn specifically, right? Yes, because so, because because, and I I, I want to make a strong a, a distinguishing line because I feel like as a society we have essentially been able to see alcohol as a disease that if a person says I'm struggling with alcoholism, it's like, okay, we get it, you know, and, and maybe narcotics and um, maybe overeating. But I feel like porn, because of the sexual nature of it is still kind of in a category like, well, maybe you're just a pervert and not, and not an addict. Right, it could be pervert. And some, you, you know, what's interesting about sex is that depending on like the kind of behavior someone's engaging in, some will think they're a pervert and some will think are like, wow, we look up to them. So 
that you know, someone you, says like, oh, wow, I have. You said? I, that's, that's very profound. Tell me what you mean. Right. So if someone's sitting there in a basement watching porn all day, then you say like, oh, what a pervert, right? Especially if it's certain kinds of porn, then it's like, wow, a real pervert. But if someone is dating three or four girls a week and they're the super hot ones and they're 30 years younger than him, right? As long, you know, over 18, obviously, right? It's like all these things that we put into, we put in there. It's like, oh, this one's respected. Or, right. So I don't think for some, we can say it's not, it's, let's not talk about porn addiction. I think let's make it a little bit wider as sex addiction. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a better category. And um, that's more like the stories I've heard. I've met very few people who have dabbled in porn addiction for too long without trying to get behind the camera. Right? Okay. Like, okay. Great. Let's make, right. Great. Turning the pixels that. into people. Right. So I, the, sorry. I, I was going to say on the, on the, on the other end that, it's seen as very admire, admirable if you are, so to speak, so clean that you don't, you know, like that you are extremely judgmental and going out there and saying, you know, this is, I, I, I'm, we're so by the book and, and X, Y, and Z. In reality, it shows that this guy also will have some kind of serious problems and, and, and childhood trauma around normal relationships. So you're right. There, there's so many, there's like what society says and how each person practices their own behavior that either it's going to like you said it's either it's gets get a perversion or we or we look up to it for a variety of reasons but either way unless you really know what they went through and what they're actually doing behind closed doors there's like how do you define what healthy looks like and, and what works which is which is a big problem again yes. like we would assume you know there's a certain level by which you know too much drinking is like we, we kind of know what's too much drinking we kind of know what's normal social drinking but like you never know what goes on behind closed doors with people, but yet there's so much judgment. And it's also so hard to be able to figure out, well, what is called normal behavior? Well, there, there's a lot of judgment around sex, which tells you that there's a lot of sex problems, right? If someone's judging me about my sexual behavior, then likely they have their own sex problems. So, I mean, that's, I think that's uniform, right? Even in the book of AA, right? The book of AA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that we don't judge anyone for their sexual, like we don't judge anyone because everyone has sexual problems. Like it uses that kind of language, meaning we're talking about alcohol where they're acknowledging this is just for a select group of people, but sex problems everyone has. So I think there's certainly that nature, but if we're talking about the addiction component itself, is it an addiction? Is it not an addiction? And I've heard all of the theories and people have, I've had people aggressively tell me, is there no such thing as a porn addiction? And I said, maybe there isn't. I'm not, maybe there's no such thing. I don't even know what the word addiction means in this context. I said, but it's been useful for me to call myself a sex addict. And I'll tell you why. Because there are a number of people who've referred to themselves as addicts who then started following a program of therapy, of healing, of help. And I just jumped on the same bandwagon that they did. And all these people are calling themselves addicts and they're following a certain program. And that was the one that I followed and it helped me, right? So I'll call myself addict all day long because the therapy that traditionally addicts have used have been helpful. So it's very common, for example, someone will walk into a therapist's office and they're not sure if they're dealing, let's say, with someone who's ADD or someone who's bipolar, right? They, it could, could very, very different what's going on in the brain, but the manifestation of it could be very similar. So what they'll do is they'll just say, give the person lithium. Lithium is known to... Um, help people who are bipolar, but not who are ADD. And if they respond to it, then we say, okay, we know they're, <laughs> we know they're bipolar. So it's kind of the same thing. You know, whether or not it, it worked, there are programs that people follow. I read tons of addiction books, tons and tons of books. I replaced the word alcohol or drugs for sex, and I found help in it. I've, I've, I've worked the 12 steps several times. I, um, a lot of the addiction recovery things I've subscribed to a lot of different modality, 12 steps, anti 12 steps. I don't care. And what I found is that it works for me the same way people have found that it worked for alcohol or gambling or drugs. So I think that that's, what's useful. I, I and, and also what's, what's, what's fascinating. And I, I, what, what, what's coming across from what you're saying is that a common theme was your inability to stop and your desire not to be doing it yet. It, it kept happening. And so, you know, addiction, people might think, oh, it has to be X number of times or X number of, of you know, whatever, however people want to say, okay, now, now I have an addiction. But at the end of the day, it's like, 
if you're doing stuff that you don't want to do and you don't know how to stop it and it's happening, so that it, it would be helpful to say, I might have at least addictive tendencies toward such and such a behavior. Yeah, and especially if you find like hundreds of thousands of people who have done certain things and have found reprieve from the addiction, at least temporarily, then it's like, okay, what are they doing? Let me jump on board, right? Tony Robbins says success leaves clues, right? So that's all. If I want what someone has, then I'm going to follow what they're doing. But I will say this in terms of the feelings of it, and I think this is important. I've heard a lot of alcoholics share their story. And I've, there's a certain theme that I think I've picked up on in terms of kinds of pain. I've heard a lot of gamblers share their story, and I've heard a lot of sex addicts share their story. And um, this is not, I haven't seen it written anywhere. I haven't seen anything else. Just hearing enough stories and wondering if I'm picking up on a pattern. Almost all people who are alcoholics, when I hear them share their story, there's some level of extreme self-consciousness that they seem to want to get rid of. So it's, they walk into um, a social setting and they're just so conscious. They feel like everyone is looking at them. Everything is about them. Is their shirt long enough, short enough, all of that stuff. And as soon as they take alcohol into their system, it's like they get out of their head and they're able to just to be present with people. And I've heard that a lot from, um, from people who drink alcohol. It's just this extreme self-consciousness. And that self-consciousness can happen even when you're not around people. There's just this way too conscious of self. The noise in your, the noise in your head. Yes. Yeah. And it's like suddenly there, it's like, okay, I fit into life here. I'm, I'm back to normal. It's right. one. Gamblers, I've heard a lot of hopelessness, desperation. And then there's just this, and it, it kind of makes sense logically, right? It's just this, okay, if I put this, then maybe I can get back hope. And there's this desperate craving for hope. Because it and, gives you, like you're saying also, it's a, it's a really cool thing because it's like, if my life is hopeless and I'm gambling, there's a chance, like that's the, that's the, the healthiest way, so to speak, that the best chance for you getting your, your life back in order is having that one win, as opposed to trying to slowly, step-by-step, step, take yourself out of what might be a, a massive hole. Yeah, well, I think when one realizes that addiction is not crazy, addiction is a completely logical experience. Yes. Right? So. Well, and in terms of sex addicts, what did you find was the common- Loneliness. Theory? Loneliness. Loneliness. So now, right, if that theory is correct, that loneliness is what is like the feeding neck pain behind sex addiction. Have we ever been in a more lonely society than we're in now? And it doesn't make sense how, and it kind of perpetuates itself, right? Because the, 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 the alcoholic embarrasses himself, right? When he drinks one too many. So the next time he walks into the party, part of the self-consciousness is who remembers me from last time when I was shit faced drunk and groped that whatever, you know, <laughs> there's all of that stuff. And, um, porn also feeds on itself also, right? Whereas I feel lonely, so let me watch porn. And then I feel disgusted by myself. So the next time around, I'm not going to connect with anyone else. I'll just work with porn again, right? Exactly. So there's like, there, there is a, a nice little cycle that's created, you know? Which is, which is, which is why, again, it's so powerful. Call, whatever, it's just, that's why the, that's why the loop, loop keeps happening. Yeah. And the same with gamblers, right? Meaning if a gambler was making money, they wouldn't call themselves a gambler. Right? <laughs> so, so there's this hope that they're looking for, and then it always comes crashing and burning down. So once again, life becomes hopeless. Right. And then just looking for that little bit of hope, like maybe this time, maybe this time I can win and stop after I win. And whoosh, like just an exp explosion. And again, desperation and hopelessness. So, so as a cure to loneliness, I guess, how... How does a, I guess, so it makes sense now why sharing ultimately cures that because sharing creates community. And even if, I guess I'd be curious as, as, a, as a Jew and as someone that still has connections to the religious world, the Crown Heights world, either by your parental, you know, just by the fact mm -hmm. that your parents, that you grew up there, your involvement in, in, in Florida, whatever it might be, what's that like being someone who's comfortable identifying what so many people struggle with. Again, I don't know the numbers of the religious versus non-religious world, but I know it's whatever, it's a problem because people are people. So like, what's that experience like being the person that's raised their hand and said, I had this happen and this is how I overcome it. What's it like going back into those worlds? I, I definitely get a lot of private um, affirmation okay. about the decision. Meaning there's, 
I don't know if some people think it's I'm out of my mind. I have no idea. Okay. They, they haven't, they haven't reached out yet. Okay. <laughs> but I, I do get a lot of messages from people who are really struggling with this and the religion definitely adds a component to it. So me for more. me, I wouldn't say religion, the, the, the religious shame was the source of the shame for me, but it certainly adds a huge component when there's a lot of messaging around, around these things, right? I grew up in an environment where if a girl was showing her knee, she can, it's like, Hey, well, what's up? Right. And in this same home, I'm sitting there in the basement looking at much more than a knee. Yeah. Right. So there's two knees, right, maybe. What? Two knees, perhaps. Right. <laughs> so you can, right. That there's definitely, definitely those messages turn it, into it almost some create, additional. It creates shape. a schism, which again, feeds loneliness in the sense that I live in one world where there's so much control, which, and then, but I'm, but I'm also living in a world where the, you know, the world is open and it's like, I can't relate. It doesn't, it doesn't connect back to each other. What ends up happening is when you, whenever you, if like the way I was, when I was, when I'm sitting there hiding these important things about myself. So when someone's connecting with me, I always feel like they're connecting to a mask of me. Uh, which, which again, more loneliness. Right. Like, right. Just feeds it again. So to be able to come to a place, and I don't think this is only the case for, for sex addiction, but for any sort of addiction, where shame is not worthy of connection. It's why support groups become so essential because to be able to, to bond with someone over this, to talk about it, it's like a weight just gets lifted off of you. And it's like, finally, I can talk about these things. And usually the stuff that make us most ashamed are the things that make us most human. Mm. And the things that are most human are kind of more uniform amongst people. Mm. So when we start talking about this, you're like, finally. Right. What a breath of fresh air to be there's saying. A real, there's a real person on the other end of that. Yeah. I was at a business conference once and the, the speaker said something like how many, by raise of hand, how many of you feel like you're an imposter some days, right? And you're talking to a room full of successful people and it took a while. All the hands got up, right? <laughs> but it's true. Everyone feels that. No one wants to admit like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. People look at me like I have the answers. I'm clueless most days. I feel like I, you know, a couple of, you know, a couple of bets worked out, but any business guy has more failures than they have successes. It's like almost the timing worked out and like they have more in number, but obviously more, not in dollar number, but I don't, I haven't met a business guy who bats a thousand, right? There's so many errors over and over. And it's like, yeah, but my first one worked. Right. So you're able to live all these mistakes. So you're able to live with all these mistakes because the first one was big enough and it worked. If the first that that, one came 10th, you would have never been around for the 10th. Absolutely. And I think that that I, I'm, it's so funny how I, like, I, I just, I put something up on LinkedIn about the imposter syndrome and like, that was after everything I'm talking about, I was like, Oh yeah. Like, how does that, you know, like that, that happens. And it's like, it, it, it's, it's interesting that we create such a, um, such an, I guess it's an expectation or we create such a high bar on everybody else. I mean, the whole idea of the, of the being an imposter is it's like, like you said, you know, I'm, I'm, I, the success in my business came at after X amount of time and with X number of failures, but clearly everyone else in this room just was, just was perfect. And, and from right. their, if they would only know what a big mistake I have. And it's, it's that same thing with, with in a lot of ways, the sex addiction is it's like, you know, you think that everyone has healthy relationships or is bonded successfully with their partners or is satisfied in their relationships or feels completely whole. And you're the only crazy one that, that that's, that's missing or, or, or engaging in behavior that you wish you didn't have to, or engage or, or feeling lonely and lost. And it's like, no, probably everyone feels that way. That's the underlying belief under shame is I am alone. I am different, right? If we didn't feel different, then we'd feel, okay, we can connect on this. And once the truth is exposed, I've seen it over and over. When someone really says a tough truth, a lot of people in the room can connect on one way or another. Like, I'll give you an example. When this guy said uh, the other night, when I heard him say his story and he mentioned the guilt he felt over killing his brother was the word he was used, right? Unbelievable. So what I connected with and what I, I walked over to him afterwards and I shared this with him was that up until a few years ago, I carried guilt of losing the wrestling match to the guy who ended up sexually abusing me. And I was like, I can't believe I was so weak. And then I was stupid. And then I was disgusting for it. And it's all these beliefs, right? That I walked in with. 
And it took my sister's oldest son to hit the age of eight for me to see an eight-year-old for the first time, like properly, you know, it's like, okay, I, I see them, not in passing, but I actually know this kid. And it's like, wow, would I ever put that, like if he went through what I went through at eight, would I ever put that responsibility on him? Of course not. But I carried these inside me. So that's what I, I mean is that oftentimes when we share our stories, especially if there's a fundamental truth there, so many people can connect in different ways. Uh, thankfully, no, I don't have the experience of drowning a sibling in a bathtub. But I do have the experience of taking on unnecessary responsibility at a very young age and carrying that guilt with me for decades. That's the that's the horror of uh, of course of 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 growing up because you feel like you're the same person and you don't have a connection to someone who until I think until you're a parent or until you're around you know children in an, in a in a setting where you actually know them and they're not just you know kids on a playground or whatever mm -hmm. it might be that you realize like wow I was really not equipped with with the the whatever it is supports support system you know like i i mean i i i had i had a a, a big challenge with my like my dad was never around when i was a kid and i have an eight-year-old son and i realized just how much if he's even an iota like me how much he needs me and i'm like well obviously i'm messed up because that was never there. And you can just see practically right. speaking like eight or seven or five, you, you're not old enough at, at that point. I mean, I don't, it's like old people, like, like, like grownups when they lose their parents still fall apart. It's like how, you know, it's just, it's a matter of, it's not about justifying anything, but it's a matter of having the compassion on yourself to say, I'm not messed up, like messed up stuff happened. And now how do I, how do I, like you said, how do I deal with that pain? What's the, you know, What's the belief that that left you with, right? That experience without having your dad available. What, what, what did it leave me with? There was some belief, right, that you walked out with. I, I, I think that what was truly shocking was not being aware of how emotionally closed off I am. I was in a, I had two very clear um, it was like two insights and then I got the message with my kid. I don't think I would have ever picked it up retroactively, although also he was never eight before I had the messaging. But I, I was with, um, I had, I, ha I, I was speaking to a therapist and I was saying how when my dad sort of like left the family, I punished him by never reaching out to him. And, and as I was saying that, I realized like, I have children, right? And I was, I think 17 when I like, like when, the, when I severed the relationship. But I'm thinking to myself like, he's a grown man. He could have reached out. He could have written letters. If my kids would disown me, I would never stop writing them letters or right. calling them. You know what I'm saying? And I, I hear, I hear, I had spent my whole life thinking, oh, I made this call and he never came back. And it's like, what the hell? Like you can't, you, can't, you know, like he could have still tried, you know? And the second thing was I had, a, I was a, it's a different person I was speaking to, another therapist I was talking to. And when I told him the story, he was like, wow, that's really hard. And I never, it shocked me that I never picked up the fact that that was hard. Right. You mentioned like emotionally closed off. Yeah. Right. So how does that happen? You weren't born emotionally closed off. No, ultimately, I think that's, that's the point is you have these behavioral mechanisms that as I get older and I explore normal, healthy family dynamics, and then I think about how, how not quote, normal, that is, you know, just even like a, the relationship between parents, how that, like you said, your parents were fighting, how that affects the kid, how helpless you feel, right? It, for right. you, it was writing a $500 check. I just remember standing there when, when, my, when my family was fighting and being so upset at how small I was, that I wasn't strong enough to physically get in there and to break up the fight or to stop the fight. And my dad was like big and scary in my mind. So I was always, I was always like, um, faulting myself for not being big enough and strong enough. And that carries with you so much so that like nowadays, even though I feel like whatever, I'm a grown man and I- You hit the gym a few times. What's that? I hit the gym a few times. <laughs> and I, and I, the kind of gym I use is fighting and I like, you know, jujitsu and kickboxing and I have guns. And it's like, you know, if a person would break into my house, I think I would have, God forbid, I think I would have a decent chance at defending myself. Am I, you know, like, uh, like what's his name? There's a guy, I don't know if you've heard of his name's Tim Kennedy. He's like a green beret in the eight, whatever. And, 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 a, and a black belt in jujitsu. And like basically the most, he has a TV show called hard to kill. And someone broke into his house 
and didn't know it was him. And so it was some kind of like recognition of whose house he broke into. And the guy was like, can you do me a favor? I'm just going to leave. And Tim Kennedy's like, yeah, you can just, you can go. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I'm not that guy. But, but it's hard to break out of that mindset that I'm not still that little kid that doesn't have to be afraid. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. And if, if you recall, when I said the story of me being abused, I said one of the beliefs I was left with was that I am weak. Yep. So totally. one of the most prominent beliefs that I entered adulthood with was I am weak and I am disgusting, right? I'm disgusting because I did certain things with him that were disgusting. I tell my, well, I mean, we mentioned, I mentioned to you that I, like I felt misunderstood because I was fat. And like, for me, it's not the, you know, thank God I didn't, I didn't encounter sexual abuse as a child, but I did have that fat thing. And, and so for me, like when I look at myself, I, I oftentimes identify with being disgusting which again, like there are all kinds of fat people out there that don't think they're disgusting and it's fantastic. But for me, like I specifically think it's disgusting for me because that's, it's that same mentality that was locked in as a child, even though nobody tells right. me. hundred percent. Right. And these are the beliefs that get sunk into each one of us. And a lot of them become so painful that they, f we feel a need to numb or escape. Right. So some people numb and escape on a smaller level and the ones who do it to an extreme call themselves addicts. But it's but that pain. But those everybody's painful doing beliefs. it. Everyone's doing it, right? It's the same thing as everyone's a narcissist. I used the word before, but a narcissist, like everyone's on that spectrum of ego. But when we cross to a certain level is when we use the word narcissism, right? But we're all kind of egotistical. And then we go, we all kind of selfish. And then there's a certain level, which is extreme selfishness, extreme focus on self that we call narcissism. So it's kind of the same thing. Everyone does what an addict does. I heard one guy say an addict is like everyone else, only more so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe speak to this idea, if you could, like once you kind of call out and you get clear, because most people I find myself included and, 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 you know, we have a really hard time looking at our past. We have a really hard time looking at our past. We have a really hard time looking at what was done to us. We have a really hard time looking at what we do to other people or what we do that we, we don't want to do. And once we do, and, and especially doing something like, like what you did, which is so brave of actually coming out and talking about it. And it's like, you know, I don't, you, I mean, you know, it's like, I'm gonna, I'm someone's husband, I'm someone's parents. And we're gonna realize our kids are gonna realize like, okay, this is the things that we, that we said. Um, Owning your story, how does that affect your day-to-day -day life going forward? There's a huge difference. The person who I am today and the person who I am then was before doing it, it's night and day. And I live with, I, I live with a piece today that I didn't even know was possible. I, I had tons of anxiety, constant, constant mood swings, I'd up and down, depression, major loneliness. I'd be, you know, one day I'm ready to go out and have fun and do things. And the next day I don't want to be seen by anyone. And now I feel like I'm, I'm relatively stable. I, I, you know, there's, yeah, better mood or worse mood, but there's none of that flipping people off. You know, I was going to ask you if it happened a few years ago, it's possible I was a guy who flipped you. you know? No, no, it's a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unless you're recently in Minnesota. I, I, don't, I don't think so. No, right. Unfortunately, my, <laughs> no, it's very present. Very, 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 <laughs> Um, and, and kind of as a, as a, a, a final sort of approach as people start to like, they listen to you and to whatever extent they listen to me. And I certainly have not owned my story in a public sphere as, as, as much as you have. Um, and they say to themselves, okay, so maybe I should think about potentially addressing some of the issues that, uh, that I know I'm not addressing. What are, what are the first steps? Like, is it, is it just admitting that? you should talk to someone? Is it, is it talking to one person? Like if, how does it, how does that process start or how did it start for you? I, I think the process is real honesty, right? Like really, really, really being honest. So for example, I told myself, you, you brought up something which a lot, a lot of this conversation is bringing me back to different points that kind of happened. And one of them was when you said, um, like, why would I address things as you know, that happened in my childhood or people are resistant to address things. So I had that belief too. Why would I? And one of the, one of the um, pivotal, pivotal, pivotal moments for me where I changed that belief, the belief was that my childhood is not affecting me. I'm fine, right? And who can disagree? Who can disagree? I was 22 years old running a multi-million dollar business. Who's to tell me that things aren't working out? Things are working out. And here's but, my bank account to prove it. 
Uh, right, as an example, right, as an example of that. But for others, maybe they're really good at sports and athletics, right? Right, and that's what's important in their culture. And they go, "What do you mean it's not working out?" Right? I beat everyone at basketball. Or, right? There's different examples of it. Some people, it's knowing the Talmud back and forth. But in every society, there are certain things that we deem successful. And when someone reaches that singular level of success, we put them on a pedestal. What happened with me is. I started loaning money to people that I knew weren't going to pay me back, but I, I, I didn't feel like I had the right to say no. So I said, yes. And I walked into a therapist's office and I was hoping for a plan or a strategy on how to deal with this. And within a few minutes, he asked me, were you sexually abused as a child? I Whoa. never told anyone. I'd never told anyone about this. It was a secret. I, you know, this, my childhood didn't affect me. Look, proof. I heard about this other guy who was sexually abused who committed suicide. And here I am running a business. We're not the same at all. Right. And what I, what I found in talking with him more and eventually I realized that I was lying to myself was that I was very affected by the abuse. I was very affected by the abuse so much so that in a few minutes of talking to him, he was able to pick up that that happened to me as a child because it's very similar, right? He's sitting there listening to stories of people every single day. And then he picks up patterns and he, I've heard this before, and I've heard this among people who are sexually abused. And that's, that's the pattern that he was picking up on. The, the craziest thing, it's, I heard, I, I spoke to a, a therapist that does a lot, that works with mass trauma, mass casualty trauma. And, and it was so fascinating because the point that she made was exactly that, which is basically that much more than it's about the traumatic event, the people that are obsessed with the traumatic events have them, are manifesting their own trauma. And that's what's attracted them to watching these events or being involved with it and that, yeah. that kind of thing. So it's, it's interesting because a lot of times we think as a coping mechanism, I'm going to cover over all my stuff and I'm going to create a personality that's different from my childhood. So, you know, it's like, yeah, I grew up with a, with an alcoholic father and I'm going to create a childhood where, you know, everything's X, Y, and Z, but what inevitably happens. Right. And then it's like, everything in your home is labeled. So everything is perfect. And it's like, look, exactly. it's perfect. And it's then exactly. you're like, oh, I, I see there's a problem. Yeah. So, so, right. so exactly the, the opposite. Exactly. The very, the very mechanism that we use to try to cover over and try to move past it becomes the clearest indicator for anyone that has any kind of training that, oh, that's exactly what you're suffering from. And so we right. are so very, free. very often the same thing will result in the opposite, right? You can have one child, like in a dysfunctional home, parents are fighting and there's chaos and one will become a neat freak making their bed and folding everything and labeling everything in their private drawers. And the other will just total chaos and erupt. And then the parents will point to the one who's chaotic and bullying others in class or, and say, look, you're much worse than your sibling. Look how perfect she is. Look how perfect he is. He's doing this. How come you're like this? And no, they're both reacting to the same, the same chaos and the same pain. And they're just going in different directions. And, and, the, and the perfect one's going to suffer. The perfect one's also going to suffer. And that's the crazy thing. hundred percent. And she's going to feel worse about coming apart because her whole script or whole life has been, you're the perfect one that got out of here unscathed. Right. The, the adult equivalent of that is some people escape into work. I, I like to joke that I had, I, I had like the, the top of the pyramid and the bottom of the pyramid for sex addictions, like the, the best in of addictions, the one that's most respected and the one that's least respected. I had work addiction and I had sex addiction, but I was numbing and escaping in both places. One th I, I've always, for the most part, not worked on Shabbos. I dreaded the weekends. If I tell you I dreaded the weekends, I looked forward to Monday. I didn't know what to do with myself over the weekend because that was the one place I felt Sunday I would work, Saturday night I would work, but it was Monday. Now I can call people and work and be busy and, you know, and right back at it the next day. I loved the work week. That was my, that was my life. And you see a lot of people who've achieved amazing financial success and you start talking to them and what's going on. And there's just right in order to do that, there is an escape. They're running from something. There's a feeling underneath it that's not coming from a place of peace. It's coming from real, real pain that needs to be escaped from. And then there's someone else who's under a bridge injecting a needle every single day. And we call this one successful and that one not. But I don't know. Are they? I mean, that, that was, there was a book that was so fascinating. Uh, it was called Chasing the Scream. About, I loved it. Oh, my God. Like, that was just so powerful the sense that nobody wants the wrath of what their decisions are causing them but just that sense of being able to quiet down that pain for a few seconds is so uh, so addictive 
And yeah, like, like you said, it, it, you know, one is maybe produ productive for society versus one is not. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the same level of suffering. And if only they could come to their own and address it, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's such, it's such a hard, it's such a hard thing. And I feel like. It, yeah. It, I wouldn't want someone to be listening to this and take away. Now I haven't done it. And now there's one more thing to be shameful about. They're like, Oh, I heard there's this heroin thing. We should try this out. This is fantastic. <laughs> no. no, but also it's, so I'm sharing my story and someone else isn't and saying that's one more thing that I'm not doing correctly. I think that different things call to us at different times and where we are is exactly where we need to be. And from that point forward, can we, or can we not, make a change? Are we ready to? There are memories that come up now that didn't come up five years ago. That's just, okay, now we're ready to deal with. But one thing I would say in terms of a practical difference, and possibly those listening can say, oh, there's a, a good litmus test. Can we sit quietly with ourselves for five minutes? And if not, it's like, how much, yes, how much do I enjoy myself? There's no noise. There's no sound. There's no anything else. The first couple times I tried this, I want just so much discomfort came up. Now, there are times where I can do it for an hour or so. I know, you know, the thought of, I know some people do it for like three day weekends or even longer, these silent retreats. Yeah, that scares me. I definitely have work to do, but it's a hell of a lot better than not being able to sit still and sit quiet for a few minutes. And a lot of what porn is, is that is just having a very easily accessible place you can always go to for instant feeling. Can we turn that off? Can we turn the lights off, sit with ourselves for five or 10 minutes and see what comes up? I bet if someone has a hard time with it, there's some unresolved childhood stuff and there's no reason pretending and running away that it doesn't exist. We're much better off facing reality and saying, yeah, the shit that happened to us as kids really did affect us. Let's deal with it. Amazing. We'll be freer for it. I, this, this hour flew by. I usually only do half an hour. I, I, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was such a, it was a, it was a very life affirming um, a, a story. And I, and I appreciate so much, not only that, that you did it, um, and then, then you share the time with with me and my audience. But I, I just hope that it's your story. It, you know, you continue to inspire people, and that people can can take the take a lot of these lessons to heart because I think it's becoming an, an just an increasingly profound challenge for for everybody. Um, how how do how do listeners find you if if they would want to connect or hear your story or what's your next steps? How do people find you? I got a couple of talks online um, on YouTube. A lot of people find me on Instagram. So E-L-I-Y-A-H-U, my full Hebrew name, underscore Nash on Instagram. And if someone wants to chat, I respond to every message. As Outstanding. Of now. Thank yeah. you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. There you have it, folks. Another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up. And also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.